Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. You know, for a change. And this time, I am not lying. I got Mark Elias and Ari Berman. Mark Elias, uh, you might know from television. He's the Democrats' lead election lawyer. You've uh, probably seen him on, on your color TV. Ari Berman writes for Mother Jones magazine about election law. We've had them on together before. They're always great, but this one, I don't know what happened, but they're on fire. They worry that there's some complacency among Democrats because this past midterm just wasn't the nightmare we anticipated in terms of voter suppression. But they are alarmed and warning us about what's coming, what states are doing to make it harder for certain people to vote. Who would that be? Hmm. Uh, People of color, immigrants, students, uh, all of the above. Here's a clip from the interview that sort of sums up the whole podcast. It's Ari laying out a very scary future that Republicans have systematically created, a a political system where there's just no recourse to protect democracy. And then he sees where he's going, he kind of bails out uh, with a lame, but I I don't think that's going to happen. And I sort of call him on it and... Hilarity ensues. Check it out. If they want to do something, they will figure out a way to do it. It doesn't matter. They they will. It, it, we will have a political system in which there is no recourse to try to change the undemocratic things that they're doing, because all of the options to try to check the undemocratic things that they're doing will be eventually systematically taken away one by one by one. And, that, and I think that's the that's the scary future where our ability to protect democracy becomes so difficult to potentially non-existent. Now, I don't think we're heading there. I don't think that's what's happening. But I think that's what they would like to happen. I think their ultimate endgame Well, then is- let's end with the, your, your optimism here by explaining why you're so optimistic. Well, I, I, don't, fail. I, I don't think I would be described. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, isn't it? That's a funny moment, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I've had Mark Elias on many times, and he's always great. We started pairing them up, and now they're like a, a, a two-man beach volley team. It's amazing. Watch these guys, except I mean listen. But you're going to learn a lot and have fun at the same time, you know, like camp. But there are some serious and sober moments, so uh, get ready for a, a bit of a ride. It's a great one today, you know. For a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So today I want to talk about uh, a few things. One, if there are any vestiges from this past election that we should be talking about uh, from the 20 election and maybe from 22 in terms of stuff that may be prosecuted. Make, for example, the uh, all I need is 11,780 votes. Uh, we, I don't know why it's taken so fucking long, but that's a, a violation of election law, right? We think? I think it violates Georgia state law. And all I can say is that the Georgia criminal process seems to, seems to involve a lot of, a lot more steps. Yeah. Well, she gets a special, uh, grand jury. But right, but it's a special grand jury that actually can't then indict anyone. It's a special grand right. jury that issues a report. And then I thought what they did would do all the work that a right. grand jury would work and then just seamlessly hand it over. And the new grand jury would go like, well, give us the weekend right, to read this or maybe even a week, a long weekend, maybe. Because remember, she said it was going to be, uh, what did she say? Uh, the first uh, trial, she said it was going to be imminent or something like that i don't i don't remember what the da said i just you know and i'm not an expert in georgia law it's just it seems like there just seem to be a lot of steps now i've asked this before but it seems to me that violating georgia law in a federal election is also a federal crime is that wrong or right no look i mean you you're right in that and, and we right. know that jack smith you know one of their charges is to look at all of this and we'll see what that yields. Okay. And then they got the fake electors aspect of that. And it could be Rico. It could be a Rico, which is a made for gangsters, right? For mob. But it's um, it's like a conspiracy, right? So they may get up on Rico charges, both either in Georgia or perhaps uh, in, in the federal government. Uh, let me introduce these guys. We, we've had both on... A uh, number of times before, Ari Berman writes uh, for Mother Jones on election stuff, right? On election yes. law and and has joined us a, a number of times before. 
Mark Elias now heads up what was the Elias Law Group and it used to be at Perkins Coie when you, you represented me there. Now you represent me at the Elias uh, uh, Law Group and you uh, ran my uh, my recount. I did. That was fun, wasn't it? You know, in <laughs> retrospect, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, every every day that um, so so right now, for those people who don't know, Carrie Lake, who lost the governorship in Arizona, yeah, in Arizona, is, yeah, is continuing to contest that election result in court, and my firm is representing Governor Hobbs, and I am amused because there is constantly press coverage about this in Arizona and elsewhere about. How long could Kerry Lake possibly pursue this? Like how how many things will she go through before she finally accepts that she's lost? And I, I always look at my watch and I'm like, well, yeah. Norm Coleman was still going at this point. <laughs> we've still got we've still got a few months. Well, they just they knew they lost. They just wanted to delay me getting there because I was one more vote. Correct. And that was it. And by the time I got there, because Specter had gone over to the Democratic Party. I was the 60th, and because of that, we were able to get the Affordable Care Act. So, yes, I, I recall when the state Supreme Court ruled against Norm Coleman, and he conceded. I remember mm-hmm. the number of people in the media were like, "Look how gracious Norm Coleman is," and I was like, "What would a non-gracious Norm Coleman. <laughs> I mean, like literally, like what credit are you giving him? He lost in the state Supreme Court. Like like what, that he didn't then somehow manufacture something in the Supreme Court? I mean, I, I, I am not on the Norm Coleman was gracious side of the fence. Al, it's still amazing to think that you are the 60th Democratic senator. Yeah. I mean, yep. that is almost inconceivable. <laughs> Well, you mean today, now, because today, to imagine yeah. that the structure of the Senate would allow you to have 60 Democrats is it's, it's hard to imagine that happening now. Or the structure of our pop. Well, you know, uh, Barack Obama had a, a great election and brought some people in. I mean, if I won by 312 votes, I think Barack helped. Although Barack didn't show up in my state at the end there. He could have done that. I could have got I could have gotten probably if he had in campaign with me, I would have been there right away. But Ari, Ari, to your point, I mean, but think I'm about not it. Bitter. Think about it, though, Ari. Either at the time that Al was elected, or shortly before, you had two Democratic senators from South Dakota, two Democratic senators from North Dakota, two Democratic senators from Montana, Democratic senators in, you know, Louisiana, in Missouri, in Florida. It was Holy a very different crap. map. Oh, that's a good way to remember. Yeah, and I mean, right. it's it's a it's possible to imagine maybe getting one or two in those places, but it's just, it's impossible to imagine the Dakotas being represented by all Democrats or, you know, Missouri having two Democrats or or whatever it is. Well, things can change again. These things kind of tend to go slowly. So, uh, Mark, I I did a speech in Palm Springs. I think I told you this, but I ran into one of the three judges on the three-judge panel uh, that heard the first case. And uh, then it was appealed to the Supreme Court and they ruled for me because I won. But she told uh, me that that Ben Ginsburg was lying uh, <laughs> uh, at lunch and, and after the day was over the, for, for our listeners and for Ari. Basically, there was this long trial and this is long, right, uh, Mark, in terms of uh, this wouldn't have happened in 
Virginia or some other place. This, this uh, length I, of- I, as as I as I pointed out several times at one point, one of the judges said, "Well, in Minnesota, we'd rather get it done." right than get it done fast. And I said, well, you've given up on fast. So at this point, you <laughs> might as well go for right. <laughs> well, it was it was slow. And anyway, so uh, there would be the morning in court and then you and uh, Ben Ginsburg, the Republican lawyer who's considered something of a hero now because he's not a Trump guy. Ari would, Ari would know that, right? I mean, that's another thing that's sort of inconceivable is that Ben Ginsburg, who was the go-to lawyer for the Republican Party, pretty much the architect of Bush v. Gore, is now a, a defender of democracy. Yeah. And that's almost as hard to imagine as Democrats having 60 seats in the Senate at this point. Well, uh, at this point, he wasn't a defender of democracy. In fact, he would go out at lunch and mischaracterize what happened in the courtroom. Then after the afternoon session, he'd come in and mischaracterize what happened in the courtroom. And at a certain point, it was not going well. It was all going pretty much in direction, my direction, because- It was going I well won. for us, just to, just to be clear. Yeah, it was going very well for us because we, were, we won the election, and that was pretty clear. And so finally, uh, Ginsburg asked for pro hoc vice. Describe pro hoc vice. Yeah, so members, lawyers are- members of individual state bars. So you can be licensed in one state or another, but from time to time you are asked to represent a client. For example, is Rudy Giuliani now in the New York State Bar? Uh, Rudy Giuliani, I think, is in the process or has been disbarred in New York. I think he has, but that would have been an example of the state bar he would have been in. <laughs> right. But okay, when you so, visit another state or another yeah. court, you you get admitted what's called pro hoc vici, which is essentially a pro forma exercise where the court, where you ask, can I appear in this one case here, even though I'm out of state? And there's a sponsoring lawyer from who is a member of that state's bar who introduces you to the court, either in writing or in person. And then that's kind of your gateway to be able to appear before that court. Okay, so I want to tell this right. After an afternoon session, and I suppose after one of those press conferences where he mischaracterized what happened, the Coleman lawyers went in to ask Pro Hoc Vice for Mr. Ginsburg, and you were there. And they said, well, uh, we'll consider this uh, overnight. Now, what they did not know is that the judges during lunch ate their lunch in quarters and watched the press conference. Is that right? Yes. They and had like that, what, like closed circuit TV? <laughs> oh, right. That, because it was streamed. There was yeah, a was service in, um, uh, in Minnesota that was like a C-SPAN kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were watching it and they watched it uh, also after the, they wanted to see how it was being represented. And of course, uh, Ginsburg was lying. So they said, well, uh, we'll take this under advisement and uh, tell you our answer in the morning. You, you were there. I wasn't there, but you, tell me if I'm right. They said, okay. Uh, he said, this is Coleman lawyers. We will grant him pro hoc vice, but you have to understand that if he lies, you guys will be sanctioned. And they said, the Coleman lawyers said, oh, no. No, that's okay. <laughs> I think that's a little more of a dramatic telling, <laughs> but I think it's just that, well, except that I ran into one of the three judges in Palm Springs where I gave this speech. Retired, I assume, at this point? I think so. And I asked her to 
give me the rundown on this because you and I have discussed this before. I think you're a little foggy on it, uh, just a little teeny bit. She confirmed everything I just said. So Ben Ginsburg, uh, he may be a hero now, but oh boy, you know, I don't like, uh, I didn't like that. But that one's done, uh, of course, of course, a long time ago. But what's, what's remaining from the 20 election, obviously the Georgia stuff, I, I saw that Smith is looking at the companies that did the research for the Trump campaign to find out if there was fraud, to, to identify the fraud, right? There were two companies, Ari? Yeah, there were two companies that were tasked with finding the fraud. And of course, they didn't actually find the fraud. No, what companies were they? Do you remember? They were like I don't remember. They're they're very like generically named and, companies. And Ari, this was before the this is before when is this? I don't know. It it's all kind of blends together at this point. It, it I might, thought it, it was after the election. It was after the election. I don't know yeah. that exactly. Because there okay. were there were so many efforts going on in tandem, as you remember, Mark. It was hard to know like who was doing what. One of them was named Kellogg, I think. Was that one of the Oh, I I can look it up while we talk. Okay. Well these were like like firms that do shit like this, right? And they are hired to find that fraud, right? And they came back, both of them came back with there's been no fraud. <laughs> one is called the Berkeley Research Group. Okay. And one is called Sympatico Software Systems. I think I really mis- <laughs> Sympatico. That that Sympatico sounds like they'll do it in your favor for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean if you can't get Sympatico to be Sympatico. <laughs> if you can't get Sympatico to tell you, you're right, client. Thanks for the money. Then, you know, you probably don't have a very good case. But both of them said, no, there's nothing here. We looked as hard as we could. Thanks for uh, hiring us. But we've come up with a very, very, very lock solid conclusion, which is there was no fraud, no meaningful fraud that could lead to a change in the election. So that kind of ends that then, doesn't it? Yeah, and Mark knows this very well, that there was all sorts of documents signed under oath in these various cases, including in Georgia, where they admitted there was no fraud. When they actually had to sign documents under oath- Who's they? Who's they? The Trump campaign. The The Trump Trump campaign campaign. signed documents admitting that there was no evidence of fraud under oath in various cases. So they could be uh, charged with that. Exactly. So they could theoretically not be prosecuted for lying, but then- they kept saying publicly there was fraud. And basically what they're trying to prove, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, because you know more about the legal aspect than I do, is that Trump was intentionally misleading people, that he knew there was no fraud, but he said it anyway. And that's the kind of intentionality you need to have to prove something like racketeering, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, one of the things that was always frustrating at the time, and for those in your audience who don't know, I represented President Biden in the Democratic Party in 65 post-election lawsuits. How did you do on those? Yeah, we, won 60, mixed. we won 64 of them. Um, uh, we also won, uh, represented the campaign in the, the two Georgia recounts and the Wisconsin um, recount. And those but that 65th, the one you lost, uh, that must have been something because that must that could have blown every, the uh, thing wide open, right? Because uh, wasn't it on curing ballots? <laughs> um, it <laughs> this was, is the one you lost. This is, I want you to tell us the one, one you lost and how it meant nothing. 
Yeah. So the one one case that um, Donald Trump prevailed on was what the cutoff date was for people who had cast a mail-in ballot and had, I believe it was that they had failed to sign their mail-in ballot return envelope, whether they had a five-day period to come in and provide a signature or a seven-day period to come in. Mm -hmm. The mm. the county it was in one county. Uh, one county said seven days, and the Trump campaign sued, saying it should be five days. <laughs> to say we lost it is a little bit under overstatement. We wound up joining into the lawsuit because we you know wanted to be in the lawsuit. But Donald Trump, fair and square, prevailed on cutting off those two days. As far as I can tell, and I've looked at this you know not exhaustively. I don't think it actually involved any votes. I don't think there actually were any voters who showed up on days six or seven who had failed to sign their absentee ballots. But that that was the one case. Nevertheless, they get to mark it in the winners. <laughs> they get to put that legitimately in the winners. But what, what I was saying, though, um, and, and Ari, this goes to your point. Rudy Giuliani said a lot of crazy things in the parking lot of the Four Seasons. But when it came to being in front of a federal judge, even he backed away from all of it. You know, he told the judge in the federal judge in Pennsylvania after that press conference that the Trump campaign was not claiming fraud. They had not pled fraud. He wasn't claiming fraud. It was, in his words, quote, not a fraud case. So there was a lot of ass covering um, in courtrooms and around court proceedings that were inconsistent with what people were saying in public. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're still waiting for the indictments in Georgia. There still can be indictments from Jack Smith on some of these kinds of irregularities. Is that true? I mean, on specifically on stuff they did in terms of lying about whether there was fraud and that kind of thing. Can can their Look, case come I, up with I, that? I, I've always and Ari, I'm curious on your thought. I, I've always thought this is relatively straightforward. There is a form that is submitted to the federal government, um, to the archivist, that says this is the electoral slate that is duly certified by the state. You know, before you get into all the fancy legal statutes around elections specifically uh, and the like, there is a general statute that prohibits submitting false statements to the government. It has struck me that not just in Georgia, but in all these states where you have people signing and submitting false elector slates to the archivist and to Congress, you have pretty straightforward liability under the, the criminal law. And to the extent that Donald Trump or his allies were coordinating that, they would under conspiracy law. You know, there may be something to it that is more complicated than that, that is the reason why this has not proceeded in, you know, in, in, uh, yet, but that has always struck me as a pretty straightforward legal theory. Yeah, I agree with Mark. I think one of the difficulties here is that they did so much stuff that had just never been tried before that people, I think, are unsure about how aggressive to be in terms of pushing these claims against them. I mean, I think that seems to be one of the issues here is that no one had really come up with a slate of electors with no basis before, and no one had incited an insurrection before, and no one had filed 65 lawsuits to try to overturn the election before. So all of that was unprecedented. And then the effort to try to figure out how much of it is illegal, and then not, not just illegal, but the kind of thing that you would actually charge someone is the thing that's been taking a long time. But I do think it's pretty crazy that Trump, the first indictment was for Stormy Daniels, of all things, which 
that that is a significant case, but I think most people would agree it pales in comparison to trying to overturn an election and incite an insurrection, all things that he has not yet been charged for. So it's just kind of nuts. And, and Mark, you, you might have thoughts on, on why that is. Maybe that was just a, a more straightforward case, but it does seem like, okay, everyone can understand paying off a porn star to be quiet and why that would be a scandal. It is tawdry, but it could have decided the election. I mean, if she had talked, and you know, remember what happened after the Access Hollywood tape, and then he was, this party almost abandoned him, or many in it, and if another thing shoe like that had dropped. Yeah, I guess you could make that argument. You so could you make, can make argument, that argument. But I, I still think that it's probably less significant than trying to overturn an election and inciting an insurrection. Oh, yeah. And I guess my, my, my question is, I, I'm worried about this stuff taking so long just because it's bleeding into the next election. And I think if you had asked me a year and a half ago or something, like how long is this going to take? I would not have imagined that we, that would be the only indictment now. And it worries me. Yeah. I'm not sure it worries me. And Ari, this is kind of more in your lane than mine from a legal standpoint. It doesn't worry me so much as if, if there is one thing that American history has taught us and the failed reconstruction efforts after the Civil War uh, and that, you know, other countries that have experienced these types of authoritarian efforts is that if you don't deal with them head on and you just think you'll let the conduct of January 6th slide, you'll let the, the attacks on democracy slide because you want to be conciliatory, you want healing, that it doesn't actually heal it. It actually incubates it for the next time. It's not that I'm worried about the charges that have been brought. I'm more concerned with the incentive structure that it set up for the next time. If people feel like, well, we were able to go this far last time and not wind up in trouble. So we can push it even a little further next time. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point, Mark. I mean, the reason, one of the main reasons why the North gave up on enforcing Black voting rights in the South during Reconstruction was this desire to move on, was this desire for reconciliation. And of course, there was no reconciliation. The South was just able to do whatever it wanted for nearly 100 years in terms of uh, disenfranchising Black Americans. And that had a big impact on the politics of the country writ large, not just of the South. What worries me is the political culture in this country that just allows someone like Donald Trump to be able to run again um, with essentially no consequences for what he did. Uh, and the fact that I think a lot of other countries would have dealt with this differently. They would have had some kind of mechanism to prevent someone like Trump from running again. Well, it was an impeachment. We had an impeachment. Well, yeah, that's a good point. That would have prevented it. And how many Republicans did it? Seven senators? Even yeah, though and thank you, Mitch McConnell, for giving this blistering <laughs> speech. There's no doubt that this president caused an insurrection on January 6th. Well, remember what he did? He delayed the the trial. Yeah, to, and then used the delay of the trial as And then used that as an excuse, excuse to not yep. impeach him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it was classic McConnell. I mean, he he created the situation to get himself off the hook on, on the ultimate vote. Um, but yeah, I mean, impeachment or there, there might have been other mechanisms, but I think just the fact that, that this is even happening, that the guy who tried to overturn an election and incite an insurrection is now the front runner for his parties. He's not only the front runner, but have you seen DeSantis on the campaign trail? I've never seen a guy less comfortable 
with human beings. I mean, he'll say to a guy, uh, what's your name? And the guy says, it's Al, Al uh, Brenby. And he'll go, good. And then move on. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's crazy how bad he is. I don't know if he makes it to Iowa. I mean, man, oh, man. I used to love meeting people on the campaign trail because, you know, I like kind of like people. I'm kind of interested in them. <laughs> he doesn't seem to have that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Mark Elias and Ari Berman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Well, let's look at what are you concerned about going into this next uh, cycle uh, either carry over from last time or concerns that may be new. Look, on the legal front and the voting rights front, what I'm worried about is that the left has in many quarters decided to move on from the threats to democracy. But it is the central organizing thesis of the Republican Party. So let me give you a couple of statistics around this and then tell you what I'm worried about for 2024. Democracy.gov, which is a website that I I created, mm-hmm. it tracks all voting litigation, not just litigation I'm involved in, but all voting litigation. And in 2022, there were uh, 175 separate voting lawsuits. This is excluding redistricting. In 2020, by the way, there were 150. So the, we went from 150 to 175. So there was more litigation in 2022 than in 2020. And of course, in 2020, you had 65 cases after election day. So it's the real comparator is 175 versus 85. But of that 175 lawsuits, a majority of them were actually filed by Republicans and conservatives. Uh, it, the reason why I start with that is that I think most people listening to this are unaware that there are any lawsuits against states saying that voting is too easy. But yet, there are actually more lawsuits. Right now, California is under lawsuit. Illinois is under lawsuit by conservatives who say voting is too easy and trying to repeal statutes that make voting more possible. The Republicans have brought litigation against North Carolina to make voting harder. They recently lost a lawsuit in the state Supreme Court of Arizona to try to ban mail-in voting. And so when you look at that and you add on to that the fact that you have 
legislature after legislature passing new voter suppression laws and election subversion laws. In some instances, these are the second or the third law on top of each other. You get some picture of what the conservative and Republican playbook is, which is they know they can't win through a majoritarian election. So their goal is to change the rules of voting to disincentivize or to dissuade or to suppress or to subvert the votes of black, brown, and young voters. And that's their strategy. And they are doggedly at it. They are doggedly at it. And I worry that on our side, you know, there is kind of like a generalized concern that these things are happening, um, but they are not nearly as closely paid attention to other than, frankly, by people like Ari, who is constantly writing about it. Yeah, I would just echo Mark's point, Al, and, and say that pretty much every Republican-controlled state passed some kind of new restriction on voting following the 2020 election, and many states have passed multiple new restrictions on voting. And this will be the first presidential election that these restrictions will be in effect for. And the presidential election landscape is different than a midterm, right? We're going to have much higher turnout in 2024 probably than we had in 2022. And there's going to be many more infrequent voters showing up. And that's the kind of people who might be targeted by these kind of restrictions. And I think there's a feeling that because Democrats fared relatively well in, in 2022, because a lot of the election deniers lost, that means that we don't have a crisis for democracy anymore. And I think that's really dangerous because these laws are still into effect they're going to try to recruit smoother election deniers than last time. They're going to try to recruit people that are a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how they might try to overturn or alter the rules of an election, but they'll basically have the same election denier playbook. They'll try to pass more sophisticated efforts to try to uh, subvert the will of the voters. I'll just give you one example of something that was really disturbing to me, and I know Mark too. The Texas legislature basically passed a bill dictating how elections would be run in the state's largest county, Harris County, uh, the largest blue county in Texas, where the legislature fired the election administrator in Harris County. It was the only county in the state where they decided to fire the election administrator. And they now, said- what, what county is this? Where Austin is or where Dallas Where Houston is? is. Houston. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's, okay. there's, there's nearly 5 million people there. It's the third largest county in the country. It's the largest county in Texas. It's the, the largest blue county in Texas. So it, it, it really, in many ways, de determines the, the swing of Texas politics. And they decided to A, fire the election administrator only in this one county. And then B, they said that if there were any kind of violations, even minor things like a voting machine malfunctioning and preventing someone from voting, that could then allow the Republican appointed Secretary of State to take over election operations in that county. Again, only Harris County. So, I mean, you, you had a legislature essentially dictating, this is how elections are going to be run in the largest blue county in the state. And if we don't like it, we're just going to take over election operations altogether. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing we were worried about happening in 2022 with all of these election deniers being elected. But it got a fraction of the coverage of someone like Carrie Lake running for office, for example. So I think they've become more sophisticated in the kind of things that they're doing now compared to what they tried to do in 2020. Are, are they continuing, to, to, of course they are, uh, to go with the, that there was a lot of fraud? Or was that 
myth are they are they trying well, in, to in do Harris that? County there were there were some election problems in 2022 because it was the first uh, election where they used a, a paper ballot system they also had new restrictions they had to follow based on the voter suppression law that the Texas legislature passed in 2021 so that created some problems in Harris County where some polling locations ran out of paper ballots but basically Republicans they did what common cause Texas called it the Texas version of the big lie where they basically said that Democrats who ran the county intentionally took away paper ballots from Republican areas so that Republicans wouldn't be able to vote and they would lose close elections. Now, ironically, that's exactly what's being done in black and brown neighborhoods for decades. Um, but nonetheless, um, that's what they argued. And basically, they said, you know, all of the elections were fraudulent in Harris County because Democrats intentionally disenfranchised Republicans. There was no evidence that that happened. Um, but that's kind of the argument they were using. So it was fraud, but it was kind of like a, a, a more of an iteration of the, the big lie argument they were using. Al, Al, I think we'd be making a mistake, at least with respect to the House of Representatives and control of these legislatures, to not also note that there is another way you suppress voters, which is by engaging in the kinds of outrageous gerrymandering that we've seen Republicans. And that's not over. You know, um, we're going to see Republicans redraw maps in several states in ways that would have defied common sense or defied even imagination a few redistricting cycles ago. North Carolina, they're going to they're gonna redistrict uh, as an example. DeSantis redistricted in the face of, of so-called fair district amendments in a way that specifically targeted Al Lawson, a black member of Congress. And so it's part of a larger ethos on the right to try to use the rules to affect the outcomes. And and when when did the Supreme Court say we can't we're not going to get involved we can't get involved in any partisan gerrymandering in twenty nineteen twenty nineteen in the and- Rucho decision but the kind of things that Mark is describing are such blatant racial gerrymanders that it's pretty amazing that those kind of things haven't been struck down in which court presumably yet. they can be involved in. But I mean, I think the the fear is that the Supreme Court is is very shortly going to also make it very difficult, if not impossible, to strike down racial gerrymandering too, leaving many fewer options uh, here. And I, I think it's just amazing if you go back and you look at the the landscape for voting rights before the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, and the landscape afterwards. It's just dramatically different. I mean, Republicans are doing things in states like Florida they would have never considered before. I mean, the fact that DeSantis tried to dismantle and did dismantle two majority black districts or districts in which black voters were able to choose their candidates of choice, that would have never passed muster under the Voting Rights Act as it was interpreted by the courts for nearly 50 years uh, before the Supreme Court gutted it in 2013. So I think Republicans are just going further and further to push the envelope here, and they feel like they're going to get whatever they want from the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court has already said, we don't care about partisan gerrymandering, and and now they they may be willing to say, we don't really care about racial gerrymandering either. Um, And that just makes, I mean, the options for trying to strike down gerrymandering just keep becoming more and more limited doesn't mean it's impossible, right, Mark? I mean, you've won a number of these cases, but yep. I feel like it's getting progressively harder. Yeah, it's getting harder them. and har- it's getting harder and harder for the reasons you said. You know, we won a case in Alabama under Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. And they said By it was too way, late. 
It was two Trump-appointed judges and a Reagan-appointed judge who said that the state of Alabama violated the Voting Rights Act. That case is now before the Supreme Court. We're going to get a decision sometime this month. There's no reason why the Supreme Court should have taken a, a Section 2 case out of Alabama. I mean, you know, the lower court applied the standard that the courts applied as, at this point, more than 50 years. Uh, the Supreme Court recently announced it's going to hear argument in a racial gerrymandering case out of South Carolina uh, that the NAACP has brought. So those are all potential troubling outcomes. And of course, troubling because they shouldn't even have to take them. Correct. There's no reason like the law of Section two. First of all, Section two is the part of the Voting Rights Act that is still in place that the chief justice assured us when he wrote the opinion to strike down Section five, the part that Ari was talking about would still have nationwide application. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I worry, frankly, personally, just as a, as a you know, on my own behalf, that there's also a, a, a widely developing asymmetry in which Democratic-controlled states are, have turned to commissions and fair district processes. Right. And Republican states are not. And so you have California, which has a commission. You have Colorado, which New York, has a, the Supreme Court overruled the House uh, very heavily gerrymandered map and and wrote a fair one. Which, yeah, although that uh, I don't think the map they drew was a fair one. I was drawn to be clear by a special master under the auspices of a very Republican judge in a very well, rural part of New York. Al, I know you're familiar with New York. The trial in that case, the hearings in that case took place in Steuben County. New York, probably hmm. not a county you've ever visited. It's one of the three or four most Republican counties in the state. But, you know, there may be an opportunity for a new map in New York. I, I would hope in your home state of Minnesota that Democrats, now that they control the full process, would look at the map there. That was a it was a court drawn map. It's not a it's not an inherently unfair map, but I think there are parts of it that frankly the Democrats could improve upon without engaging in well, partisan. Well, thank God we took the Senate, we took the House, and we have the governor. So we got an amazing amount it, done. It but is, but just imagine if the Republicans controlled the full process, what they would do. And all I'm saying oh. is Democrats shouldn't do that. They should just do enough to make sure the districts ad accurately reflect the population of the state. Mark makes a really good point, though, about the bait and switch that's going on with the Supreme Court that I, I don't feel like it's getting enough attention because I think the the media writ large still is treating the Supreme Court like a good faith actor. And really? it's not. It's why not is a good faith <laughs> actor. Why is that? But why it's does a corrupt political body? Because I think we've just been we've institutionalized these norms for so long um, that it's it's really hard to to feel like one branch of government, the branch of government that in many ways the public had the most faith in for so many years has just become a, a corrupt, rigged body. Why would anyone treat it as a good faith body? Well, I think because of the legacy of it, I think they think of it as Brown versus Board of Education uh, and all of Roe versus Wade and all of these landmark decisions. That's how the court was thought of for so many years by a large majority of the public, that it's taken a while to get to a point where you realize that this is just a corrupt, rigged court. Because over and over, they, they keep saying when they do things, oh, we're not doing this. Yeah, but Brown v. Board created a new right. Dobbs ended a right. I mean, they're doing the opposite. Well, I, I, I completely agree with you, Al. I'm just saying this is how I think why people think of the court for a lot of years and the way that they think of it.
Ari, not to turn you into the defender of the entire media, but it is as a as a reader and <laughs> as a consumer of media and as someone who follows the Supreme Court, I, I note that a lot of the good reporting about the court is actually not by the people who cover the court every day. Yes. I think that's a really good point. I think that's- So why is that? <laughs> I, I'll tell you, Mark. Who, who are when, you? I, when I, we when have Dahlia Lithwick. On. The few times that I've walked in to the Supreme Court press corps to cover voting rights cases, you know, I'm getting dirty looks. And, you know, people like me that don't aren't there all the time and are tight with the justices, where they feel like we're outsiders in their little club. Um, and I think that basically it's a it's a fiefdom. The Supreme Court press corps, it's little fiefdom. It's a group of a very small group of Washington insiders. They're not bad people. I read a lot of the reporting, but I think that basically it's a small club that is very comfortable with the structure of the court, very cozy in many cases with the justices on both sides. You know, there are journalists that have been friends with justices on both sides of the aisle for many, many years. And it, it kind of feels like a, a new form of an old boys club where there's a small number of people covering nine people who are appointed for life. And there's lots of things that go unsaid. How did all the people that know Clarence Thomas the most, that have covered him closely, not know about all the things he was doing, not look more into what his wife was up to, not look more into his friendships with donors? I mean, this is the kind of thing that like, you'd think that the people that are closest to it would have the most incentive to try to uncover. But I think it's because it's such a clubby institution. Well, they, um, maybe I mean, Mark, they don't have why the aren't, Why aren't Supreme Court decisions live streamed? <laughs> I mean, Good question. It's crazy how arcane the system is. I mean, we can watch every congressional hearing pretty much on live stream, um, but we have to constantly update on SCOTUS blog for someone to run in and out of a room to get opinions on what happens before the highest court. I mean, it's just the whole way the Supreme Court works is so crazy. But just to just to make my final point, the Supreme Court said in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013. We're striking down the requirement that states with long history of discrimination have to approve their voting changes with the federal government, but we're not touching the other part of the Voting Rights Act that applies nationwide and is permanent. Well, then they then turned around and gutted that case in 2021. Then they, in the redistricting case where they said, we're not going to strike down partisan gerrymandering, we're not even going to review partisan gerrymandering cases, they say, well, we're not doing anything to disturb racial gerrymandering. Well, now they're hearing a case that is probably going to make it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to strike down racial gerrymandering. They also said, we're going to defer to state Supreme Courts. Well, now they're hearing another case, Moore versus Harper, that can completely neuter the power of state Supreme Courts and say that legislatures can basically do whatever they want. Are they still going to review that because the court changed? Well, right. we, that's a big mark. Do you have theories? No one really Look, knows. I, what they're I, doing I, I, I don't think we know. What happens so that everyone uh, listening... The North Carolina courts struck down the North Carolina map as unconstitutional under the state constitution. And this is when it was a Democratic court, progressive Then there were elections and the court flipped to be Republican. The Republican state Supreme Court then reheard those same cases, which was a little odd unto itself, and came to the opposite conclusion, said that there is no cause for partisan gerrymandering and undid that. In the meantime, before that second case by the state Supreme Court- There is no cause to rule that there's partisan Right. The case goes to the US Supreme Court. And so the US Supreme Court is now reviewing a court ruling that has been essentially undone. And so full disclosure, my law firm uh, represents the Harper in Moore v. Harper. Mm -hmm. All of the 
pro-voting organizations, the state of North Carolina, everyone other than the Republican legislature, and curiously common cause, uh, 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 says that there's no case to decide and therefore the case should be dismissed. The Republican legislators and common cause think that there is a case to decide. And and the the, the scary decision that uh, the Supreme Court, that the state legislature was uh, was proposing here, that the outcome would be that the state Supreme Court really can't overrule uh, the state legislature in terms of writing the voting rules. Is that right? That is the case that's before the Supreme Court. Right. And that's very, very, very frightening. Presumably, so right now, the state legislatures can overturn state a, courts. A, a, a state Supreme Court, yes, can overturn uh, the state legislature's map and say, no, 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 no. This is too, this is partisan gerrymandering. Right. But if the Supreme Court can't overrule partisan gerrymandering and this case holds in Harper, then is it impossible for the Supreme Court to overturn? Yeah. Then, then, then it's immunized, and it's it's worse than just the redistricting arena. The same clause of the Constitution, the election clause, applies to all federal election laws. So I tallied up. There are twenty three cases right now in state courts around the country to strike down state voter suppression laws. And if the Supreme Court rules the way the Republican legislature of North Carolina wants, all of those twenty three cases go away, and all of those laws stand. And that will be a catastrophe for democracy. So this is just democracies on the line all the time. And it's the Supreme Court. I mean, Shelby County was a terrible decision. Citizens United was a terrible decision. In both decisions, premises that they were based on were shown to be uh, were disproven. In Citizens United, it was uh, Kennedy wrote in his, in his decision that we would have disclosure. The internet is uh, up now and we can have instant disclosure. And of course, we don't have disclosure because Republicans, we tried to pass that and Republicans have all voted against it. Look, I, I'll let Ari speak to the motivations, but whether it is bad guessing <laughs> or Republican malfeasance or disingenuousness on the court, in case after case, I mean, Ari correctly cites the the Chief Justice said that you know don't worry that there's no federal cause of action for partisan gerrymandering because the state courts can still police that. Well, now we've got more v. Harper and we're waiting on the outcome there. When Shelby County came out, not only did the Supreme Court say that Section Two would have uh, continued uh, vitality throughout the country, and now that's being questioned, but in Citizens United, as you say about disclosure. In, in case after case, the Supreme Court is predicating its outcome on a assumption about how the political branches will respond, which just doesn't turn out to be true. Or, or they know that their decision. Right, that's why I said I leave it to you, exactly. Ari. Whether it's because I mean, you look at you look at what Alito said in Dobbs. He said we're just returning the issue of abortion to the democratically elected state legislatures. Well, <laughs> the Supreme Court has made those legislatures in Republican-controlled states as undemocratic as possible by allowing voter suppression laws to stand, by allowing 
extreme gerrymandering to stand by allowing those states to be flooded with big money. I mean, so the idea that that they're saying, okay, we're going to return an issue to a branch of government that the court itself has shaped to its liking over and over and over, to me, just shows the bad faith reasoning. And I think it shows why we need to stop taking the court at face value and start describing these opinions as part of a longer term political project by the GOP to try to undermine the will of the people. That's really what's going on here. And the Supreme Court has become a major driver of this effort. And I think that just people are just now, largely because of Dobbs, finally coming to grips with that. But you're right, Al. To me, Citizens United and Shelby County were the twin evils that really created the anti-democratic momentum within the Democratic within the Republican Party. And both based on premises that weren't true. So let me ask you whether this is naive or just just incredibly stupid. You write an opinion like Kennedy did and said the great thing about this is that there'll be instant disclosure of who's spending the money. So then uh, that doesn't happen. Why can't you revisit it? Why can't someone revisit the case and go like the, the whole opinion hinged on this and it turned out not to be true? Why don't you guys should look at You have to look at it again. You have to. And then on uh, Shelby County, it was all hinged on uh, we don't need it anymore because it's worked. And there isn't racist gerrymandering anymore. And then, boom, you know, North Carolina targets its African-Americans with almost surgical precision as the Fourth Circuit ruled. Why doesn't someone just bring a a case and say, like, you're wrong? So you were wrong. You you could bring that case. I mean, one of the one of the least least, um, I think, covered cases was actually a case brought right after Citizens United by the state of Montana that said, look, you said there wasn't a record of corruption. We in Montana can show you a record of corruption that's unique to corporations. And the Supreme Court didn't care. Like The problem is you can bring the case, but do you really think that the current composition of the Supreme Court is going to come to a better outcome? You're bringing it to the same court, and now you're bringing it to a worse court. Worse court, right? I mean, it's not, it's not, uh, Ari, I would take I mean, the no, same, I mean, I would Mark, take the same I you, court. I know, <laughs> I know you debate this. Voting rights lawyers debate whether they even want to file these cases these days. Because they'll just have a new wrinkle. They're worried about the even decision. setting worse precedent. Now, I mean, Mark, you could speak to this much more than I could, um, because then an action can become a reason for paralysis, Right. right. Um, yeah. But I get I get the sense here. Every time we bring a Voting Rights Act case, that could just lead the Supreme Court to further and further weaken the Voting Rights Act. Now, maybe they're going to do that anyway. But I'm just saying that's a debate that is now going on in voting rights circles. So what I'm suggesting is something of a debate, at least. At least what, I, what the question I asked wasn't idiotic. No, it's uh, that not was idiot- too long. It's not idiotic. It's no. just it wouldn't be successful. It wouldn't be successful. I mean, I think current I- court to change their mind. I'm not in the camp that says we shouldn't bring cases because we may make bad precedent because then you wind up letting if if the Republican legislatures think you won't sue them, they will do even worse things. You have to show the other side you're willing to use the tools available. But that said, I think that part of what you're getting at, Al, and part of what I hope on the left develops is a longer range jurisprudence that we want 
to to get behind. You know, a lot of these things that Republicans are doing now, they didn't originate a year ago or two years ago. This has been a mission of theirs for a long time. I mean, look at the fight, Ari, you mentioned over abortion, how long they have had this mission. And I just hope that our side doesn't get distracted from the, the attacks on democracy and not dedicate the time and energy necessary to build a positive jurisprudence so that when the composition of the courts improves, we're able to have something in place. The other thing that I find surprising is that why more Democrats haven't embraced changing the structure of the Supreme Court. Part of the problem is that a lot of Democrats, a lot of Democratic elected officials are still treating the court as a good faith branch of government. I mean, it's like they're begging them to testify on ethics. Why don't they just pass new ethics rules and say, this is what you have to do? I mean, I understand they don't control the House. They can't just do that. But I mean, they had power over the last two years. And maybe they couldn't have changed the entire structure of the Supreme Court with a 50-vote majority. I get that. I'm a political realist. But Biden didn't even want to have the conversation. I mean, his Supreme Court commission did some good work, but it pretty much was an attempt to try to bury the issue. Why wouldn't you try to attack this issue head on, either to put pressure on the court so that they might actually change some of their views, even if they don't believe them, but they might feel like there's some ramifications of it, or to try to change the public's mind in such a way that they become supportive of things like this. It just seems to me that this was taken off the table very early on by top Democrats in a way that I think was a mistake, and not even for political reasons, but I think for substantive reasons. I don't think you could look at the way this court was structured and not believe that it's an illegitimate court based on the 63 majority they have now. They lied about what they were doing. They said it was because that when Scalia died, there already been there's already already been votes cash in New Hampshire. Then, of course, when Ginsburg dies, it's like late September. Coney Barrett gets sworn in in eight days before the election when tens of millions of votes, real votes, not in a primary, but actually for the president. And, and it was all about. The American people have the right to pick the president who's going to choose next. Uh, the, the hypocrisy, and they don't, they don't care about it. The, the, then, you know, they said if they lose the Senate, will you not let the president nominate? And they go, yeah, of course we wouldn't. They don't hide it, right? I just think it's a mistake not to have the conversation. I think if your goal is restoring democratic norms – then one of the ways to restore democratic norms is to restore democracy to the Supreme Court. I think right now it's not a democratic body in the sense that it doesn't reflect the will of the voters and it was composed in an illegitimate manner that defied basic democratic norms. So, Mark, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, um, but it just seems to me that we should have had more of a conversation about it within democratic circles. I agree with you. We should have more conversations about it. I also think that when you look at some of the reforms, for example, expanding the number of justices, it doesn't take the need to even call the court illegitimate to do it. There's nothing magical about nine. The Supreme Court uh, was not, the number of justices was a historical accident. It has nothing to do with anything that was planned out this way. Um, If you had the same number of justices today as you had when this historical accident sort of took place, you would have 13 because there was one for every circuit, plus there's the DC circuit and the federal circuit. 
you know, the Supreme Court only hears because of its nine justices and the way in which they select cases. They're only hearing 60 or 70 cases. Well, look at the volume of litigation and set aside for a second the cases that we mostly focus on. There are lots of cases that the Supreme Court is not deciding and not hearing that have no partisan valence, but which a larger court would be able to hear. So I think that there are good reasons to do that. I also think, by the way, we as Democrats should be spending more time talking about expanding the size of the courts of appeals and the district courts. You know, getting a case heard, you know, Al, you started this conversation by talking a little bit about the some of the criminal cases. If a case gets filed in Washington, D.C. right now, a criminal case, and the criminal cases move faster than civil cases, you know, a complex criminal case will take a year before it gets to trial. A civil case, you know, because they get bumped for the criminal cases because of the Speedy Trial Act, could take multiples of years. Well, one way you deal with that is you simply appoint a lot more judges to those lower courts. And so I think that those are things that don't get caught up in some of what maybe are the apprehensions are among some Democrats. I don't, you know, I don't have all those apprehensions, but there are practical reasons why I think some of these reforms could be addressed on their on those merits. I mean, Al, weren't you on the Judiciary Committee? Yes, I was. So you you have interviewed some of these justices under oath. Well, yeah, the the only Republican ones was Gorsuch. Uh, one was, was Gorsuch, Gorsuch yeah. who I uh, asked about the frozen truck or what he would. Have done. I was going to say the only thing I remember from any Supreme Court hearing was you having an exchange about some poor guy who like died on the side of the road or something. Well, would would have died unless he had did the smart thing. He it was thirteen below. He was out there freezing. He had fallen asleep. His brother-in-law had called him. He had hypothermia. And the company told him, nope, don't leave. We're going to come get you. But it had been hours. And he, he unhitched the trailer, which had frozen brakes. That was the problem. So he went. He did that. He went out and found a place to warm up, warmed up, and came back. And they fired him because he, quote, didn't drive the vehicle. They said, you can either drive the vehicle out or stay there. And because he unhitched the payload under Gorsuch's thinking, he didn't drive the vehicle out. And he was in the minority. The other three, three judge panel, the other two said, no, he drove it out. Also, he could have frozen to death. <laughs> and I kept asking Gorsuch, what would you have done? Oh, I don't know, Senator. I had empathy for the man, but I didn't put myself in his shoes. Well, that's emp- what does empathy even mean? Oh, God, I did not like him. It's just, you know, again, that I think it's just Republicans, back to Mark's earlier point, have been so much better at playing political hardball than Democrats. I mean, they would have never allowed a situation where Somehow or another, one of their justices was blocked for a year, um, and then another was a well. Was we had nominated. How, what would we have done? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Republicans would have done, but I, I just, I just think they would have found some sort of way to put a Merrick Garland on the court or to prevent an and Neil Gorsuch from getting on there. I mean, I get that there's political realities, and you can't do anything about these kind of things. Well, you remember they got rid of the uh, you know the filibuster, this, this filibuster on yeah. Gorsuch. And so yeah. now every one of these 
is going to be hyper-partisan. They got rid of the filibuster to construct a six to three Supreme Court supermajority, but Democrats, namely two people who are basically no longer Democrats, wouldn't get rid of the filibuster to protect voting rights for the next generation. I mean, that's the kind of political asymmetry we're talking about. And and Al, look, they, they are rolling out right now a theory in the U.S. Supreme Court in Moore v. Harper that basically says there is no state court judicial review. This is the case we are talking about. Right. Okay. That's a made up doctrine. I mean, it's just, let's call it what it is. It is a made up doctrine. They recently, in an area of law I don't really practice much in uh, anymore, but uh, in the administrative law context, they created something called the major questions doctrine. That is also a made up doctrine. Like they're, they're, they'll do anything. Right. So I will just, I'm going to go on record on your podcast and in 10 years or whenever it comes up, you'll, you'll replay this. If there is a Republican president who wants to put someone on the Supreme Court and there is a Democratic Senate, he will say he has talked to uh, senators on both sides. He has sought their advice. He has gotten their informal consent to the extent he needs it, and then he'll put them on the court. And as fanciful as that sounds right now, and I'm not saying that that is, by the way, right by any stretch of the imagination, but like that's what he'll do. Well, I I, want to hear the part where he says, I've gotten their consent. And then the Democratic leader. So now the Democratic leader goes, okay, here we are. Uh, Did anyone give their consent? (laughs) No. So you're lying, Mr. President. I mean, Ari, I don't know if you think that that's too but extreme they for the Republicans. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. If Republicans had faced a Merrick Garland situation, they would have figured out a way to put Merrick Garland on the court. Like, I think Mark's absolutely right. They would have just recessed to point him and said, challenge it, try to change it, you know, try to challenge it after the fact. But he's going on the court. Um, I, I just, I think they would have done that because I mean, we've seen Republicans do things like this. I mean- they 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 made up things left and right to try to overturn an election. They've then tried to institutionalize the made up stuff before the Supreme Court. I mean, basically, what they're asking the Supreme Court to do is to sign off on the theory that the Trump campaign used to try to overturn the election. Correct. In all of these Correct. places, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They are trying to get the Supreme Court to sign off on what could credibly, I guess, be described as their most important theory behind, to say that there was a theory, their most important theory behind why the election should be overturned, right? Because state legislatures have unfettered power to essentially do whatever they want. I mean, that's what John Eastman was arguing. And that's what he argued in 2020. And that's what he's arguing before the Supreme Court now. Yeah, well, he, he said he was going to lose 8-1. Eight, eight and I, I imagine that was Thomas. Right? That was 8-1 in terms of 2020. That wasn't 8-1. Yes, in that's of what I'm saying. Harper, right? Right. Right. I mean, four justices have already endorsed the independent state legislature theory. Right. So, I mean, it could get dismissed for any number of reasons, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be eight to one, even though it's essentially the same theory. Right, Mark? Yeah, no, that's 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 exactly right. Okay, let, let's guys. Uh, I want I want to move on this uh, this coming election. What are we worried about this coming election in terms of election law and election? Uh, administration. So I, I think Ari said something really, really important, and I'm going to repeat it. And I hope I hope everyone listens to this. 
for people who thought the 2020 election hung by you know not by a string but by you know was 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 tattered by the end a lot of them looked at 2022 and they were like well now everything seems to be working just fine our election system is not any stronger in fact in some ways it's weaker you know the ability the funding mechanisms around some of these counties and states has deteriorated the voter experience the laws have changed in ways that make the voter experience harder fewer good people want to work on elections either on a volunteer basis or in a paid capacity and so what ari said earlier is and i'm going to use my words not yours ari but i hope i am capturing this is that 2022 wasn't a stress test you know the people who vote in the midterms are people who are going to be voters no matter what right they're they're turned out in an off year and the system doesn't face the same kind of volume so at a very very baseline matter level what i worry about is that the system is under more and more stress more stress than it was in 2020 and that the progressives have sort of gotten this false sense of security by what happened in 2022 that it's actually a more robust system when it's actually weaker Arya, did I capture that roughly? Yeah, I right? think that's a really good point, Mark. I mean, the thing is, what has changed since 2020 and what happened in 2022 is in a number of really key states, we dodged a bullet, right? But we didn't bring the patient all the way back to health. We haven't actually done anything in a lot of these places to make the election system better. Now, in some places they have, right? Michigan flipped. And they've passed a number of laws that should lead to better elections. But in a number of states like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, where at best there's divided government, the laws have not changed, do right? You, do you think that the different Supreme Court in Wisconsin could change some sure, of Sure, it could change it. But I'm just saying, as of now, the election system has not been secured in those states. And then in states like Georgia and Texas and North Carolina, et cetera, et cetera, the laws have changed for the worse. So, I mean, there, there is no baseline protection for voting rights that has been passed since 2020 to give you ultimate confidence in how the election would go. And that, and that is all the usual stuff, just making it harder to vote. Making I think you it, might be downplaying the significance of all the usual yeah. stuff, Al. I mean, well, I mean you know, like go, targeting college kids, you have to live, uh, they send to your home address in Pennsylvania if you go to school in Texas and you don't get a reply, you're off the rolls. Yeah, right? look, that I, kind I, of shit. I, I yes, but it, but to Ari, to I think what Ari is saying, or at least for myself, one of the challenges I face in talking to people who have means about what voter suppression means is that it is so foreign to them that sometimes it's hard for them to imagine. So, how long would you wait in line to vote? You're you're a former U.S. senator. You're a very prominent American. You have lots of resources. Would you give up three hours of your day to wait in line to vote? Would you give up five hours if you knew it was going to take five hours? And, and so for yep. someone now who is poor or someone who now has daycare or childcare obligations, that is not just making it harder. That is effectively taking away their right to vote. And when you look at who waits in line to vote in America, it's basically black voters and college students. And so it is a tax that legislators are able to put on the most vulnerable voters without it being felt by people who 
don't live in those in those communities. You know, there's right. a there's a statistic I'll give you, and you know, then I'll get off the soapbox uh, from the 2020 primary in Georgia. We sued after there were long lines, and in the six metro counties of Atlanta, if you were in a precinct that was 90 percent or more registered black voters, you waited in line an average of 51 minutes to vote. If you were in the same six counties, so there's no argument about resource allocation. There's no argument about different personnel, same six counties, and you were in a precinct that was 90% or more white, you waited an average to vote six minutes. Six minutes versus 51 minutes. Now you understand what it means to say you can't have food and water in line. It is the final indignity being heaped on folks who are waiting in line. And those folks are not the white voters. If you are waiting six minutes in line, you don't have time to eat. And so there is a fundamental structural problem that that these voter suppression laws interact with that create not just barriers to voting, but but fundamentally just disenfranchised voters. So your anticipation is that this is going to continue and if anything, get worse. It is getting worse. There were more anti-voting laws introduced this year and more anti-voting laws enacted this year than in 2021. In 2021, there were anti-voting laws enacted and Major League Baseball moved an all-star game. The corporate America took out a full-page ad. Democratic legislators walked out of Texas. It was leading the national news. That's still going on. You know, Idaho passed a law banning college IDs. Ohio passed an omnibus voter suppression law. Florida passed yet another omnibus voter suppression law. Texas as Ari said, is pass these laws that literally target one county, which happens to be the most Democratic county in the sure. state. So it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Okay. Well, that's I think what I was the asking. One positive <laughs> takeaway, I think, I think the positive takeaway from 2022 going into 2024 is that 2022 showed without a doubt that a majority of Americans want to defend democracy. And that if given a choice between someone who believes in democracy and someone who doesn't, they will choose the person who believes in democracy. But there was also, that was the leading issue. You could argue there were two huge issues in the 2022 election, and they were related. They were abortion and democracy. And of course, the Dobbs decision was a result of an undemocratic political system. So in many ways, they were one and the same. But to have all of those election deniers defeated, it required democracy to be in the minds of people. And it required a movement that could persuade a majority of Americans to believe that, as Joe Biden said over and over, democracy is on the ballot. And I think Mark's concern and my concern is that in 2024, that's getting overshadowed by other things, right? That's getting overshadowed by the circus in the Republican primary. That's getting overshadowed by so many things. And people feel like democracy isn't on the ballot anymore. When the same things are at stake in 2024 that were at stake in 2022. And by the way, the big thing we haven't talked about is Trump is on the ballot or might be on the ballot in 2024 in a way that he wasn't in 2022. The stakes for democracy are as great in the next election as they were in the last one. But it doesn't seem to be getting the same level of attention or being treated with the same level of urgency. So, so what are the points that we need to be anticipating going forward? Or this, is this just happening daily in different places? I mean, uh, this is how daily it's happening. So Dobbs comes out, a bunch of states decide that they're going to restrict abortion rights. 
Well, a lot of those states have ballot initiatives. So folks who want to protect abortion rights decide they're going to put things on the ballot and uh, try to protect abortion rights through the ballot initiative and They get it above 50%. Now they want to change it to 60. Yeah. So Ohio, this, <laughs> yep. uh, this uh, the Ohio then passes a law to change the threshold from 50 to 60. Recently, Ohio Secretary Frank LaRose said, quote, the effort to move the threshold is, quote, 100 percent about keeping a radical pro-abortion amendment out of the Ohio's constitution. Right. So, like, that's just using that's just rigging the rules. Because you don't like democracy. Well, couldn't they? Uh, have, have, what do they need to pass? That law, because couldn't like 51% of them make the threshold 90%? (laughs) Yeah, they can. I mean, why not? You know, I mean, the the hopeful thing is that a majority of people can defeat the measure at the ballot. I mean, it should never have gotten that stage. And Mark, it sounds like there's a pretty strong argument to throw it out in court to begin with. Yes, my law firm is suing to block it, to throw it out. So it may not even get to that point. Um, But I mean, it's just crazy. This is, again, the same kind of thing we're talking about with the Supreme Court, which is that they, if they want to do something, they will figure out a way to do it. It doesn't matter. They, they will, it, it, we will have a political system in which there is no recourse to try to change the undemocratic things that they're doing because all of the options to try to check the undemocratic things that they're doing will be eventually systematically taken away one by one by one. And, that, and I think that's the, that's the scary future where our ability to protect democracy becomes so difficult to potentially non-existent. Now, I don't think we're heading there. I don't think that's what's happening. But I think that's what they would like to happen. I think their ultimate endgame well, is- Well, then let's w- end with the, your, your optimism here by explaining why you're so optimistic well, I, I don't. Fail. I I don't think I would be described. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever heard Ari described as an optimist. Yeah, yeah. I, I well, think, I mean, uh, you're saying now I don't think that's going to happen, and I well, go I, like, I don't think oh, it's going to happen that democracy good, will become non-existent. But what I think is, it's very probable that rights that we've cherished for decades will keep getting narrowed or taken. I, away. I have to listen back because that's not quite what I heard. I I was all set for the oh good. I, I guess the thing I will say is that. If there's a way for a majority of Americans who believe in democracy to channel their views through the political and the legal system, they can win these fights. But if the ability of a majority of Americans who believe in democracy to defend democracy, if those avenues are limited or taken away, then it's very, very possible that the democratic rights that we've cherished for so many years will disappear because that's what's been happening over the past decade. Okay. So the charge to my listeners is to keep awake and and do everything you can in your locality, your state to fight for democracy, to fight for fair elections, to fight these, these bad guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. Because if the issue you care most about in this world is climate, we are not going to solve the problems of climate without a functioning democracy. If the issue that you are primarily motivated about is abortion, we are not going to protect women's health without a functioning democracy. We're not going to tackle the problems of childhood poverty and education. We're not going to tackle the problems of 
inequality in income. We're not going to tackle any of the problems that, that progressives may list as their top concern unless we solve the problem of authoritarianism that is threatening our democracy and is undermining free and fair elections. So what is it that your audience can do is they can do the same thing that you're doing out today. Every one of them has a public, a town square that they can go stand out in the middle of and, and speak to. For you, it's a very big town square. You're a, you're a, you're an international celebrity. People listen to you on podcasts. They see you on TV. You can speak out and a lot of people listen. Well, in Hungary, Hungary, they've been listening to me on the democracy. <laughs> for others, for their town square, for others, their town square may only be their friends. It may be their, the people they hang out at the diner or their family around the kitchen table. It may be their Facebook group or their town square. But what I'd ask everyone to do is, not retreat from discussing democracy, not say, well, I don't want to discuss it because you know it's divisive, but rather lean into discussing it. Stand in your town square and say, it's not okay what's happening. It's not okay when we see the courts undermining personal freedoms. It's not okay when legislatures are changing the threshold for ballot issues. It's not okay when candidates are running on a big lie platform because it is only by ordinary Americans all speaking out that we will be able to win the, the war and the battle for hearts and minds, because democracy relies not just on the rules and on the laws and the norms, but on how people feel about things. And so that's what I think your audience should do. Well, that's your charge, folks. And uh, thank you, guys. This has been a great one for a change. <laughs> Well, no, you're always great, but I mean, most of my podcasts are just dreck. <laughs> anyway, uh, but this is, uh, I think for my listeners, uh, a big pick-me-up, and uh, they may even listen to my next one now. Thank so thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Al. Thank you, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? 
we recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.